welcome to the Fair Forest Podcast. Here you can find sermon, Bible study, and devotional audio from Fair Forest Church of God in Spartanburg, South Carolina, a place of hope, healing, and restoration. It is our prayer that this content introduces you to Jesus and deepens your relationship with Him. And thank you guys. Thank you guys. Thank you. Give this choir a hand clap. And I'm going to read the text and I'm going to let you sit down. Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. I'm just going to ignore whatever that was. (laughs) Just going to ignore that completely. Verse 28. I'm going to start at verse 28 and then I'm going to read... Verses 36 through 44, so verse 28 gives us some context. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. Now verse 36. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road, as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives. The whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if I were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and he saw the city, He wept over it. He said, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, I pray that you anoint your word. I pray that you give me strength. I thank you so much for what we have already felt and experienced. But now, Father, I pray that you would take the opening of our hearts and minds, Father, through worship and allow the seed of your word, Father, to find fertile soil inside of us. I pray, God, in in this moment, God, that we would be encouraged and challenged both at the same time. I pray that your spirit would do the great work that your spirit alone can do. I pray that people would be different because of this word. I pray that you would raise dead things to life because of this word. I pray that you would speak peace into chaotic places because of this word. I pray you would break down strongholds of pride and arrogance because of this word. I pray that as you rode into a town that had no idea what they were receiving until you had risen again, I pray, Father, that you would ride into our towns this morning. I pray that you would ride triumphantly into our minds and into our hearts. I pray you would move triumphantly into this place where we have gathered to seek your face. I pray the king would show up in the kind of way that leaves no doubt that there was a king in this place. I'm going to say what I need to say, nothing more, nothing less. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, friends. Man. Palm Sunday. When I was a kid... Palm Sunday was filled up with new hats and pieces of plants that we carried into the church once a year. We drug palm branches in, or at least things that looked like palm branches. Sometimes they were made of silk or plastic, I think, so I don't know. I don't think that's hypocritical. I think we were just doing the best we could do. And we would wave them. We would hand them out sometimes when we were leaving. I I remember some of this vaguely as a kid. And some of that has gone away as we've gone on in the church life cycle. We don't drag plants in in the same way that we used to. Maybe next year we'll do that. Maybe we'll have a throwback Palm Sunday next year. We'll bring a bunch of plants in here and you guys can wave them at me. We'll give them to the kids in the back in kids' church. They can beat each other with them. It's the spirit of the resurrection, amen? 
But I think sometimes it's confusing as to why this Sunday is marked on the church calendar and why it is held with such great importance. And so I want to spend just a couple minutes maybe giving you a framework for what happens in our life when we allow Palm Sunday to be what Palm Sunday is supposed to be. Sunday is also known as Passion Sunday. That was a later edition, sometime in the middle of the 1900s. They started calling it Passion Sunday as well. And part of that is because this day marks the beginning of Holy Week. This is the first day of the week. Some of you are still operating under the idea that Monday is the first day of the week, and that's why you hate every week, because you keep starting off the week with the day that you hate. Can I just tell you, maybe this is all you need to hear for the entire, for the entire week. Stop acting like Monday's the first day of the week. Just back that up one day to Sunday, and then you'll start with worship and praise and glory, and Monday will just be the second day that may or may not be all that great, who knows, but you've begun your week with joy in your heart. So maybe that's just, uh, that's free, that's not in my notes, but maybe some of y'all, that might have set somebody free in this place, so I, God knows and Holy Spirit can work in his own way. But, but this begins Holy Week, and it refers to the moment of the triumphal entry that we just read, when Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem, surrounded by the shouts of Hosanna, the son of David. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. But I think we intentionally commemorate it because it creates a break between the rest of the life of Christ and this last week of his earthly ministry. There's something that I wanted to say and I didn't know where to put it in so I'll just, I'll just say it here. The word Hosanna is something that we cry out. In fact, say Hosanna. This is one of the things they were declaring that day as Jesus rode into Jerusalem. And I think it is, it, I know in fact, it has come to be known as a word of praise, a word of celebration, because we see it in this text as a word of celebration. But the word Hosanna has actually a very unique meaning in the Hebrew language. See, it's not a Greek word. It's a word in Greek that they've just spelled out with Greek letters to sound like the Hebrew word because they weren't going to create a new word in the Greek for it. And the only time you see it in the Old Testament is in the psalm that we read earlier this morning in Psalm 118. I believe it's in verse 25. Where, but, but you see, and I, I won't go back to it, in the psalm it doesn't actually say Hosanna. In our English translations, it says save us. See, the word Hosanna means save us please, or I pray that you would save us. And, and I think when we come into this Sunday, when we come into this holy week, it is important that we start to pull the reins back on a life that is running so fast most of the time. For some of us, schedules are packed. Life moves at breakneck paces most of the week. And on this day, can I just speak over you? And maybe it's time that we not cry Hosanna just to celebrate and then leave. But it's time that we cry out Hosanna as it was originally intended. We say, Lord, please save us in this moment. And I'm not just talking about first-time converts or sinners who walked in. I'm talking about those of you who are still carrying burdens and who are still fighting through struggles of sin or difficulty. Hosanna might just be your word today. Save me, Lord, please. This is what they're saying as he comes in. They're not just saying, it's a good time. He's here. Celebrate, everybody. They're saying, save us, Lord. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord because he brings salvation with him. This is what they are saying. We long for the son of David who will come and save us. And so Palm Sunday is not just a declaration of worship. It's a pleading for salvation. And can I just tell you, if we don't slow down, at least for the next seven days, we will miss the salvation that God actually wants us to have because there's gonna be a temptation in your life and in my life to see salvation and say that is for the someday, for the by and by, for the, for the future moment when God returns or I pass away, when actually Jesus is wanting to bring salvation into the houses that are represented in this room and he wants to bring salvation into this very house this morning. But if we don't slow down, it just becomes another thing that we say. This day just becomes another thing that we do. I'd read the story about a Spanish chef named Andoni Andruiz. I think it's Andruiz. He runs a restaurant called Mugaritz. And he's consistently listed, I believe, in the top five restaurants in the entire world. That's a big deal. 
Like, I don't know if any place in Greenville or Spartanburg even made the list, just, just for reference sake. So your favorite restaurant didn't even make the list that this guy is top five in, okay? That was a joke. You guys are serious this morning. That's okay. I, I appreciate that. I appreciate that. Thank you. But he was on this Netflix special uh, that, that had to do with cooking and food, and we have like all stations dedicated to cooking and food. It's amazing to me. But he was on this, and one of the conversations that they had had to do with a unique schedule that he kept at the restaurant Mugaritz there in Spain. And he said for one-third of the year, a full third, four months, we close. Those are the top five restaurants in the world. They're losing a third of the year's revenue. And he said, this is why we do it. Because if we never shut down and actually start to experiment and go deeper with what we know, then we can never do anything truly innovative, new, or special. He said, if we never slow down, then we'll just keep doing the same thing over and over and over again, and we'll never actually dive deeper into what is so important to us or what we say is so important to us. And can I just tell you, for the next seven days, some of us have already got stuff on our schedule. I get it. i got to preach four times this next week, so I understand there is, there is plenty to do this week. But can I just tell you, along with me, I would invite you, we've got to intentionally take some time and not let this moment pass by. We have to back off of the accelerator and say, Jesus, what? What are you wanting to tell me? What is it about your life, death, and resurrection that I need to hear? What freedom can come into my life if I'm just willing to stop with a lot of other things that I don't actually need, settle in, sit down, and then let my life be saturated by the reality of what you have accomplished? Some of you know all too well there's a big difference between something that is seasoned and something that is marinated. You know what the difference is? About two days. Anybody on a whim can go snag some meat, bring it home, fire up the grill, and then shake some stuff on it and toss it on the grill. And the outside of the meat will taste great, depending on how you cooked it, I guess. But if you plan ahead, and you lay that meat into a marinade and you let it start to get through, what happens is that when you season something quickly, the outside gets the identity of the seasoning. But when you marinate something for two days, the very soul of that meat starts to take on the same properties of the marinade that the chef has put together. See, I would say if you're marinating something, I'll call you a chef because I've never done anything like that in my life. If you're just seasoning something, yeah, you're a, you're a grill master on Friday. But if you're marinating it, I'll call you chef all day long because you're letting what you have prepared get into the very heart of what you're going to partake of. Can I tell you something this week? Don't be seasoners, be marinators. <laughs> Let the power of the resurrection get into the very center of who you are so that it becomes your identity. Oh, hear me, and I wanna preach the rest of the sermon right now so I, I, don't, I can't talk fast enough and y'all can't understand me if I do. But I want you to hear me. When it starts to get inside you, when the resurrection stops being something that you read a couple of times in your devotions each year and it's just something that we talk about on occasion in church, when it starts to get inside of you, suddenly you realize that there's no dead thing that has ever come against you, that there is no plague that has ever touched your body, that there is no depression that has ever touched your mind, that there is no struggle or strife that has ever touched your family that can survive against the resurrection power of Jesus because it digs into the identity of who you are and so what you speak is not just seasoning on the outside, but but it's marinade on the inside. And when you talk, you talk life. And when you talk, you talk joy. Even in the worst of moments, even when circumstances surround you that you wouldn't wish on your worst enemy, you start to speak and you can't help but say things that are life-giving, that are filled with resurrection, that are filled with joy. This is what happened to Balaam. I can't preach all this because I'm gonna run out of time, but God help me. Balaam tried to curse Israel in Numbers chapter 22, I believe it was, but God said, no, no, no. I am going to give you the words to speak. And when I give you the words, to speak, even when you try to curse something, you start to bless it. And I'm here to tell you, if you'll let the resurrection get into you, you won't be able to curse your own life. You'll start to speak life in places where you're trying to speak death because the joy of the spirit of the resurrection is the power of life for the believer who settles and soaks in the middle of what Jesus has done. Give him praise in this house.
Mm. Say, I'm going to soak in it. Oh, some of y'all never said that in your life. Say, I'm going to soak in it. Some of y'all need a spa day. Need to get that into your, into your vocabulary. I'll say this finally, and then I've got three ideas I'm going to tell you about. The Gospels spend a disproportionate amount of time in their accounts about Jesus' life when they're talking about his passion. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic Gospels, roughly 40% of those Gospels is dedicated to the last week of Jesus' life. 40%. All the other three decades of his life is disproportionately less than what they talk about these last seven days. In the Gospel of John, it's even more. John uses 66% of his gospel to talk about the last week of Jesus' life. They're telling us something. They're telling us that this week matters. Can I tell you something? There's never been a more important day in your life than the day that took place 2,000 years ago at Calvary and at that garden tomb. I don't care what you've done. I don't care where you've been. I don't care what you've accomplished. I don't care how you've failed or how you've succeeded. There's never been a more important day in your life than a day before you were even born because on that day, captives were set free. Joy became available. Grace was on tap. And Jesus did something that would reverberate throughout the entire course of human history, both past, present, and future. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Amen? And so, the slowing down is a discipline. And I want to show you from the text here how oddly inefficient Jesus was. The Zechariah prophecy in Zechariah 9.9 that we get some of this text's background from, 500 years before Jesus rode into it was about 514 years, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, before Jesus rode into Jerusalem that day, a prophet named Zechariah said that your king is coming. And he's riding on the back of a donkey, even the colt of a donkey, the foal of a donkey. Now, here's, here's what I love and what I missed as a kid is, is that the donkey that Jesus rides in on is not the big donkey, it's the little donkey. At least that's what the Bible seems to say. And can you imagine any less efficient way to ride into town to declare that you're king than on a baby donkey that's never been ridden before? So one of two things is happening depending on the age of this donkey. One, it's either shaky leg, and so Jesus is having to balance his way into Jerusalem. Or two, because when they get to be about a year old before they've been ridden, they have not been broken yet. And so they want to buck and they want to get you off of their back because they're not used to being sat on. So one of two things is happening. And I want you to understand this. This is the fascinating thing. Jesus is still human. Donkeys are still donkeys. I know God's still God. Jesus made it in Jerusalem. But I do not believe for a second that it was the most comfortable ride that he had taken that day. How oddly inefficient, how oddly inefficient that he chooses probably the most difficult way to come into Jerusalem that he could possibly imagine because the declaration that he wanted to make was one of peace, not war. This would not be a king who came into his city to take it with violence. This would be a king who came into his city to suffer violence because the kingdom suffers violence. And, and the language that is used in the King James, I love. When Jesus sent his disciples to go, get the donkeys. He said, go and set them loose. And if somebody asks you why you're setting them loose, tell them we're setting them loose because the Lord has need of them. And, and I just want you, to, I don't want you to hear. And I got my three ideas and they're going to be quick-ish. But I want you to hear. God wants to set loose some inefficient things in your life because when we live out of our own strength, we're not living in his strength fully. And sometimes God wants to set loose some things that we would have preferred to stay tied up, not to embarrass us, but to teach us how to trust that he is actually the one who does the work of salvation in our life. Jesus doesn't say just set loose the war horse. He didn't say set loose the thoroughbred. There was a story about a Caesar who came riding into a city pulled by Bengal tigers. That was a symbol of authority, war, pomp, and circumstance. Jesus comes 
stumbling in on a cult and then stops halfway there to weep over the city that he's coming into. This is not an efficient story. This is not the fastest and easiest way to get to Jerusalem. In fact, what Jesus seems to indicate is this, that maybe the slower you go, the deeper you go, and the goal is not to get through this week as fast as possible. It's to dive as deeply as you can into the reality of what is taking place because it's at the depths that you'll be set free and it's at the depths that revival will come into your life. It's at the depths that you will find that you're different than you once were. It's in the depths. Too many of us running past this week, letting Easter glance off the side of our chassis because we've got things to do. Stop doing them. I'm begging you, stop doing them and let it saturate your soul. Come in on the donkey if you need to because you don't need to get here fast. You might need to stop and cry for a while when you realize what's going on, but let it get into you, not just on the outside of you because Jesus has something for you this week. He does. Mm. So three things I'll tell you. We want to slow down this week so we can see where the king has been and so we can see where the king is going. So we can see where he's been and so we can see where he's going. So I want you to look at Luke 19 as a whole. I love this. Luke 19 has the triumphal entry kind of in the middle of it, but it starts with Jesus coming into a place and then at the end of the chapter, Jesus is coming into another place. See, Jesus is showing up all over the place in Luke chapter 19. And so I love the fact that the bookends of this chapter, the bookends of the story of the triumphal entry, take Jesus from Zacchaeus' house to his father's house. And I think it matters that we see where he's been and where he's going. He enters the house of Zacchaeus. If you look in the beginning of chapter 19, it says he entered Jericho and he was passing through. I love that it says he was passing through Jericho, but his his passing through actually becomes the first triumphal entry in this chapter because he triumphantly enters the house of an ethnic extortioner, a religious traitor, and what was essentially an organized crime boss. Zacchaeus utilized Roman muscle to extort exorbitant taxes from his own countrymen. And so he's sort of, if you want to get a picture of him, he's kind of like Joe Pesci. He's a little guy, we're told in the scriptures. A lot of influence, talks real big, keeps a lot of muscle around him so that when he gets disrespected or somebody doesn't do what he wants, he sticks the swords on him. He's going to be hated by his people. He is hated by his people. All tax collectors are hated by their people. But when you start to look at the math and see how much he has to return by the end of this story in order to make good, you realize that this guy has been living it up on the backs of his own people. They did not like him. And Luke 19 opens with a scene where Jesus freely walks into the house of a reviled tax collector and then speaks grace over that house because that house had been slept. Jesus would even say, you look that in the verse, it says down in verse nine, today salvation has come to this house. Jesus comes in and rearranges everything about Zacchaeus' life to the point that this diminutive extortioner would become a multiplied man of generosity. When I alliterate things like that, my mom likes it, and so I like to do things like that. She likes rhymes, and she likes alliterations. He's a multiplied man of generosity. You say that, it makes you sound smart. It really does. Uh, He becomes different than he was. When Jesus comes into your house, your house is different, your family's different, you're different, and the way people see you is different. Doesn't matter what was before you. Now, they are frustrated with Jesus constantly because what he eats with tax collectors and sinners. And and in this situation, you got to think that they are pushing back a little bit, saying, hey, hold on, there's a couple of reasons you shouldn't go in that house, Jesus. First of all, for your own safety. You know who this guy is? He's going to shut you down. And I can imagine Jesus maybe looking at the Pharisees saying, give it a couple days, y'all going to do that for him. But then second... What about your reputation? Everybody's going to know that you, this rabbi, 
speaking allegedly for the Father himself, have walked into the house of brokenness, of sin, of extortion, of violence. What about your reputation? And can I just tell you what the story seems to indicate is that Jesus doesn't really care about his reputation all that much. When he's walking into a place where he knows salvation is needed, he will allow every bit of the rumor to go on about him because he's not concerned with what we say about him. He knows who he is, and he knows that if he, the one who should be concerned about his reputation, never walks into the places where his reputation might be maligned, then that place where his reputation might be maligned can never experience salvation because if the light never actually makes it to darkness, the darkness never gets to be healed. And Jesus says, I don't care what you say about me. I just know that this guy climbed a tree, wanted to see me. And so we're going to eat together. And not only that, but I'm going to change his ever-loving life. Don't you believe for a second that your house is too broken for Jesus to come in and eat a meal and save your house. And you need to tell people that you work with and people you meet and people you play golf with and people, I don't know, whatever you do, shop with, I don't know what y'all do. I don't have any idea. Collect stamps with, whatever clubs you're in. You need to tell every one of them. Man, there's some darkness in your house, but guess what? There's a light that'll come into that place too. Zacchaeus didn't have to leave his house to see salvation. Jesus walked into the middle of it. The triumphal entry into Zacchaeus' house brought salvation into a place you never would have expected it to be because he'll find you in the places where you are. But then at the end of the chapter, it says that he entered the house of his father. He starts out in Zacchaeus' house in Jericho. But then by the end of the chapter, he's going to walk into the temple in Jerusalem. Now here's what's fascinating about the two stories when you look at them bookended. Both of those places, at both of those tables, there was extortion happening. I want you to see this. In Zacchaeus' house, the tax collectors... The tax collector was extorting money from his own people. But in the temple, Jesus walks in and sees that the money changers are keeping people from actually being able to worship in the way that they wanted to worship, in the way that they were called to worship, in the way that God wanted them to worship. And extortion was taking place in the house of God, just like it was in the house of Zacchaeus. But Jesus doesn't come in to break bread with them. Jesus comes in to turn the tables over. Can I tell you why I think that is? Because I think it's a question that we have to ask if we're going to be real and honest about the text. Why is it that Jesus seems to be so lenient when it comes to sinners, but he seems to be so strict when it comes to religious people? I'll tell you what I think from the text. See, Zacchaeus' house had salvation spoken over it, and so the identity of God over that house was just now coming into being. But if you work back to Isaiah chapter 57, I believe it is, or 54, getting old, you will see that in the prophet Isaiah's writings, that's where the expression comes from, where God says, my house will be known as a house of prayer. See, God's already spoken identity over that house. Zacchaeus' house didn't have the identity until Jesus spoke it, and so he's gracious and lenient. But the house of God has already been spoken over as a place where prayer is supposed to take place, as a place where worship is supposed to happen, as a place where the broken are supposed to come in and find healing and grace in time of need. And yet in that house that had already had identity spoken over, it, there was extortion going on, and Jesus says, that's fine, you knew who you were supposed to be, and so I'm going to make sure that you get exactly back to the place that God wants you to be. This is a warning, can I just tell you? The longer you walk with Christ, the more apt he is to come into your life and flip tables instead of just sitting at them. But it's not because he hates you. It's because he's trying to recover your identity. Everybody was thrilled with that point. When he flips tables in our lives, it's not because he is, it's not because he wants to destroy us. It's because he's trying to recover what he spoke over us in the first place. It, it's, if, if you looked in Matthew's gospel, I love what Matthew does here because this is beautiful. We see in verses 12 and 13 the same thing that Luke says. He entered the temple, he drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and the overturned tables of the money changers. 
And then he said, it's written, my house should be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Now look what happens in verse 14. The Matthew account is so powerful. He says, as soon as he flips the tables, as soon as he runs out the extortioners, as soon as those who were limiting the presence of God from the people who had need of it, verse 14 says this, and the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. Look what happens. When Jesus is courageous enough to flip the tables in our lives and in our churches. He says, I'm not doing this to destroy you. I'm doing it because there's a flood of people who have been standing at your doors, waiting to hear the gospel of grace, waiting to get healed, waiting to be, have, have hands laid upon them, waiting to be prayed over. They flood in as soon as Jesus reforms that house. Because I'm just here to tell you, in my, in my life as well, the more tables he flips, the more people are gonna have access to what he's doing in my life. Sometimes the more tables he flips in this house, He's not doing it because he hates us. He's doing it because he knows that there are people at the gates who desperately need to hear the gospel of Jesus, who desperately need to experience the power of the Holy Spirit, who desperately need to have the healing touch of the balm of Gilead poured out over their life. And if we are doing anything, can I just make you this pledge? If we're doing anything to hold them back, I want him to flip every table that we've got because I don't ever want to be a place where they can't come in and find the grace and healing that they need. personally and as your pastor. Jesus said, I'm not flipping these tables because I hate the temple. I'm flipping these tables because I love the temple. I sat at Zacchaeus' table because I love his family. And I'm turning your tables over because I love you. Because walking in the fullness of your identity is not optional. It is God's goal for you. The fullness, the anointing that God has placed over your life. And there is an anointing that God has placed over your life. So, so here's, here's what I'll tell you. This is going to get sticky for a minute, and then we're going to go to the next point, and hopefully we'll be okay. The question that I kept coming back to as I was studying this and reading this is why does Jesus do, Jesus do it differently for some than others? And, and I believe the identity issue is absolutely part of that. But can I just tell you, I think the more relevant question is, do I want what Jesus wants in my house or do I care more about his tone than his goal? Should listen to what I'm saying? If the question we're asking is, why has he got to get so angry? Maybe we care more about the tone of the voice of God than we care about the goal of God in our house. And can I just tell you, the tone of God will be the tone of God. He will speak how he wants to speak. But if we can answer that first question, do I really want what God wants for my life, then suddenly the tone doesn't make any difference. If he comes sitting at the table breaking bread or if he comes flipping over the tables, what matters is, is that I become what he has called me to become. And I just wanna, just wanna push that out there to you a little bit. Do you care more about the way God's talking to you than you do what he actually wants to accomplish in you? Are we so easily offended when God is honest with us that we miss the miraculous power of what he's trying to do in us. I love you. And I love myself to a certain degree, so that hurts me as well. Slow down long enough to see where he's come from and where he's going. Because whether you're steeped in sin or steeped in religion, he wants to bring renovation to your house salvation even second slow down long enough to see that Jesus is the king that we need even if he's not the one we would have chosen slow down long enough to see that Jesus is the king that we need even if he's not the one we would have chosen the people even in this text in, in Luke 19 and Matthew 21 and you see it in John 12 as well it's in Mark's gospel too. All four gospels carry the triumphal entry. The people even cry out in this moment that he is the son of David. And you see them looking for another kind of king in the same way that David was king. They want that warrior carrying a sword. But then along the pathway as they're declaring these things over Jesus... The temple professionals come in and say, hey, you got to shut them up. It's blasphemy. They can't say those things. And Jesus says, I don't know what to tell you. If they get quiet, the ground's going to start talking, and you're going to be really scared at that point. 
I'm saving y'all from getting freaked out. Let them talk. You don't want the alternative. Oh, you don't look at me like you would be okay if rocks started talking. <laughs> Heaven help us all. You'd run. You'd run faster than you do from a dark church. They said, we want you to uphold the law. The people wanted David with a sword, and the Pharisees wanted Moses with the law. And Jesus would not be either. He would be some of both. But he would not be what they wanted him to be. He would be what he actually was. Both of them wanted a king who would liberate them from Rome and bring Israel back to prominence. And I think, if we're honest, that's the kind of king that we want too most of the time. We want a king who's going to vindicate our lives in the way that we want them vindicated. We want a king who's going to stamp our decisions and our opinions and say, you know what, Chris, you were right. This was the best way to do things. Nice work, kid. We want the kind of king who gives us the kind of liberation that proves we were right all along. But Jesus comes to us differently. Jesus comes to us uniquely himself. And he refuses to lower the value of his calling just because the people want him to. Andrew Greeley, in a piece he wrote for the Chicago Sun-Times back in 2004, called There's No Solving the Mystery of Christ, he said this. He said, much of the history of Christianity has been devoted to domesticating Jesus, to reducing that elusive, enigmatic, paradoxical person to dimensions that we can comprehend, understand, and convert to our own purposes. And he says, so far it has not worked. If Jesus makes you feel comfortable with your agenda, then he's not Jesus. Because once you domesticate Jesus, he isn't there anymore. So we want the king who conquers the throne, not the one who takes up a cross. That's precisely who Jesus knows he has to be. And he's not willing to set his goals as low as the people wanted him to set them. He didn't come to take a throne. He came to establish a kingdom, and you do that differently. how awkward that silence is the spirit does that on purpose because I think if we're honest most of us myself included we want the Jesus that we get to draw the lines for and that we get to color like we want to that's the Jesus we want can I tell you something we don't want the Jesus who says close your mouth when you've got something really great to say and we don't want the Jesus who says, stop shouting at people because they disagree with you politically. We don't want the Jesus who says, love suffers long. We don't want that Jesus because we'd rather be right than be saved. The problem with the Western church is that we've all got education and opinions. And Jesus comes in and says, I don't care about either one. What I care about is what makes for peace. You see that language in Luke 19. What I care about are the things that make for peace. And the, th the things that make for peace are not the things that you think make for peace. The things that make for peace is when my presence can come into a space and be the only voice that you ever listen to. What makes for peace is when you're willing to take up crosses and lay down lives. What makes for peace is when I can be the king that I actually came to be and you will follow me regardless of where that leads you. What makes for peace are the pathways that look different than the pathways you would have chosen, but you're following those pathways because you know that my blood is sprinkled along those pathways. What makes for peace, what actually defines the kingship and the kingdom of God is what Jesus actually is not what we want him to be and so we're always going to want to push back on that because we want to be king of our own life when he says the only king that can actually liberate you is the one who came from heaven to bring the kingdom down and he's not a king that wears a crown, he's a king that wears thorns and he's not the king we would have chosen but he's the king that we needed because the goals of our life are not the goals that we actually need. The goals he has for us are the ones that we actually should long for. And that requires so much submission, doesn't it? Jesus comes into the scene, bringing the kingdom. 
And, and here I'll say this and I'll move on because I don't want to just beat you to death with this. While this is the kingdom that I think the people had been hungry for, it still is not the kingdom they've been expecting. Frederick Buechner said this. I love this. He talks about the kingdom in his sermon, The Clown in the Belfry. He says, if we only had eyes to see and ears to hear and wits to understand, we would know that the kingdom of God in the sense of holiness, goodness, and beauty is actually as close as breathing and it's crying out to be born both within ourselves and within the world. We would know that the kingdom of God is what all of us actually hunger for above all other things, even when we don't know its name or realize that it's what we're starving to death for. Can I stop there for a second? I've got just another sentence to read. But he says this. He says that we are hungry for this thing even before we know exactly what it is. And can I tell you the best way that I can tell you that you do? It's when you get everything that you want and you realize that you're still not satisfied. It's when you made all the money and you bought the things you wanted to buy and you paid off all the debt and you've got the spouse, the kids, or whatever it is that you dream of, whatever it is that you want. You've got the promotion, you, you know, whatever it is. As you get older in life, things change, you know? Younger in life, you want to graduate from something, get a good job. The older I get, I just want to make sure my hair stays in place and that my teeth don't rot out. Like, I, I have different goals now. The older I get, you know, I'm just looking at life differently, right? But, but we know that when we achieve and attain those things that we're longing for, there's still that pit inside of us. Buechner says that's the kingdom. The kingdom tells us that there's nothing quite like this that truly satisfies us. And, and sometimes it takes, Solomon had to do this. I can't preach it, but Solomon had to do this. Solomon did everything that any of us would ever want to do, and then he did it in exponential numbers. Wayne gave my wife about 5,000 tulips last year. And she planted them, and I had to help for a little while. I was very upset. Solomon didn't plant flowers around his house. Solomon planted forests. Solomon didn't have a barbecue on Friday night. Solomon had parties that lasted three weeks where they're killing hundreds of animals a day just to feed everybody in the palace. And when he comes to the end, he says, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. It is a chasing after the wind. I am not satisfied when I got everything that I thought I wanted. And the reason for that is because the kingdom cannot be had in the same way that everything else we possess can be had. The kingdom cannot be had by taking hold of it. The kingdom can only be had by surrendering ourselves to it. Bigner says we're hungry for it even if we don't know what to call it. This is what Jesus came to establish, a kingdom that can only be possessed when you stop holding on so tightly to what you want and to what you want him to be, and you start letting loose of your hands and saying, what you have is what I will receive. He might not be the one to stamp approval over all your opinions, but he's absolutely the one who can set you free from all the weights you've been carrying. That's a good word. I didn't yell it, so some of y'all didn't get it. Maybe I'll shout it later. <laughs> Fourth, finally, we have to slow down this week because we need to see where Jesus has come from and where he's going. We need to slow down this week because we need to see that Jesus is the king that we needed, even if he's not necessarily the one we would have chosen. And finally, third, we need to slow down to see that the kingship of Jesus is not contingent on circumstances, but it's a truth that runs deeper than perception. I'll say that again because that's a long sentence. We need to slow down today and this week so that we can see that the kingship of Jesus is not contingent upon circumstances, but it's a truth that runs deeper than our perceptions. I'll explain that. The royal identity of Jesus is secure through the season of the cross, not just after the resurrection. Listen close. He is king before he's risen from the grave. He does not become king after the cross and after the grave. He has been king eternally. And who Jesus is, is a truth that runs deeper than what we see in Passion Week. But it's the truth that is actually the foundation of everything that we will celebrate in this week. At the beginning of this week, people are shouting, Hosanna, blessed be the king. But by the end of this week, those same people will be shouting, give us Barabbas and crucify him. 
It's an intriguing move when you see Jesus riding in as a king and knowing that that's coming in the story. And we refer to this moment as a triumphal entry, but in just a few days it's going to seem like anything except triumph, isn't it? The king who comes riding in with peace in his hand and tears in his eyes, longing for the salvation of the city and the temple, it's going to be the same one. It's going to be beaten at Gabbatha repeatedly over and over again. Until the book of Isaiah says that he was not recognizable as a person. This one that is being declared king is going to have fetters on his hands. He's going to be beaten with sticks and fists. He's going to be spit on. His beard is going to be torn out. His brow is going to be pierced with thorns. He's going to stand before so-called authoritative bodies. Moment after moment. Before the Sanhedrin. Before Herod. Before Pilate. And before the people. He's going to look anything but like a king. But isn't it interesting? When Pilate stands before Jesus, it's in the book of John, I believe, and he says, are you a king? And Jesus says, yeah, my kingdom's not of this world, though. And Pilate says, oh, good, so you are a king. Even in the moment of his arrest, even when everything seems to have fallen apart, Jesus knows what the Father has spoken into him and over him and the truth of God's calling and anointing and purpose and identity in his life is a deeper truth than anything that happens around him in terms of circumstances or perception. And can I tell you what you learn about this? That is that what Jesus tells you you are, what the Father speaks over you and into your heart, what the gospel does in your soul, what it redeems you from, what it says that you can be, the identity of salvation in your life is a truth that runs deeper than every other thing that comes against you. It runs deeper than sin and rebellion and sword. It runs deeper than calamity and chaos. It runs deeper than everything that would come against you to attack you, to overtake you, to overcome you because what God speaks into you is a truer statement than all of the things that come against you on the outside because he speaks to the level of identity, not just the level of perception. Oh, some of y'all need to be more excited about that because you're going through things right now. You're going through things right now that would lead you to doubt that God actually did in you what God said he did in you. And I'm just here to rebuke that in Jesus' name and throw the lies back into hell where they belong. Because if God told you that you're forgiven, free, redeemed, and set apart, then what you feel like doesn't matter. What he's spoken over you matters more than what you feel. Jesus says, take my life as I give it to you. Beat me with your sticks. Whip me with your whips. Put your thorns in my brow. Hammer my my hands to a cross and my feet to the same wood. Stab my side with a spear and I'll still be more king than anybody I've stood in front of, than anybody who's ever lived in history. My kingship is not defined by what you see. It's defined by what the Father has spoken. Your freedom is not defined by what you see, and your liberty is not defined by what you feel. Your salvation is not about what you think you can conjure up or convince yourself of. It is the reality of God's word over you when he says, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. You don't have to feel it. You just have to know that he's spoken it over you. The feelings may or may not come. Don't sweat that too much. Jesus didn't. He said, I know who I am, and you can't tell me any different no matter what it looks surrounding me. There's a truth that runs deeper than perception, and that truth is the word of God. Over your life, into your life, and about your life. David did this. You remember the story of David? Some of you do. Some of you know it better than I do. But the life of David between his anointing and his enthroning is a master class in the attack of perception against God's declaration. David gets drug in from the fields. I'm just about done. I love y'all. 
<laughs> You're going to start not trusting me when I say that. Gets drug in from the fields, the last son of Jesse. They got to clean his feet off before he can come inside and see Samuel because he's been out there with the sheep. But he comes in, just hanging out, singing songs, loving God, killing bears. And Samuel says, you're the one. Breaks the oil open, dumps oil all over his head. And, and so what happens? Immediately takes the throne. They put a crown on his head. The regalia, the robe, the ring, the shoes, the Jordans, whatever it is. No, no. He says, all right, appreciate the bath. I'm heading back out. I got to clock in. Sheep ain't going to take care of himself. And so David, after his anointing, walks right back out in the fields. So, okay, we're good. A little while later, still in the fields, Israel's fighting. David's taking grilled cheese sandwiches to his brothers. Because nothing nourishes the weary soldier like bread and cheese. Sees Goliath in the valley. Wonders why nobody's fighting with him. And they, they started to make fun of him. Did you leave the few sheep behind? See, they're still, down, they're still downgrading him. The king looks at him and says, you can't go fight him. He's a man of war. He's been a man of war since your youth. You're just a teenager. And David said, I don't care. I'll fight him. What have I got to lose? A few hours with the sheep. He goes into the valley and he kills Goliath. And suddenly things start to look different, don't they? His star seems to be rising. David begins to ascend. David's defeat over Goliath and leading the armies of Israel into battle to defeat the Philistines puts his name on the map. Suddenly they're singing songs about him, right? Saul has killed, killed his thousands, and David has killed his tens of thousands. And David's sitting in the palace now sometimes. He's playing the lyre, the harp, the guitar for Saul because Saul is tormented in his spirit. And David does such a good job leading people into battle. He marries the king's daughter. Everybody thinks, man, this guy is something special. Everybody except Saul because his job is threatened now. You ever had a job that your boss wasn't quite as good as you at? Everybody who works for me is that way, so amen. And so Saul says, I'll kill you. He breathes out murderous threats. He says, I'm going to spill your blood. So David is now on the run. David, who got anointed by Samuel a few chapters ago, is now on the run. David doesn't have anything to eat. He's got to take the bread from the priest's table. So he has something to eat on his way out. And David will spend, listen to me closely, 10 years at least, 10 years out of his country Away from the nation where Samuel said he would sit on a throne, he is spending 10 years away on the run, living in caves and hovels and digging places underground, fighting for his life. A bunch of people with bad credit and no job come rolling up and say, hey, we heard rent here is pretty cheap. You got room for us? And he's looking around like, I'm supposed to lead the armies of Israel. I've got this motley crew of miscreants surrounding me, and this is the group I'm supposed to run with? He says, I was anointed for something different than this. I might be leading them, but I was anointed for a throne. What in the world is happening? And so in the Psalms, we get to hear a lot of what David is going through. Mentally struggling, he's wrestling with the ideas that God maybe has left him alone. Maybe he missed out on what Samuel actually spoke over him. Maybe it was a lie. Maybe God was wrong. Who knows what it is? But seemingly every time David starts to doubt, he comes back and says, I will choose to trust you because I believe that you're still faithful. You are still the God who has never let me down. And I know that I'm in a situation that doesn't make sense, but I just have to wonder, maybe God, if there's not more than I have seen in this moment. Well, Saul is going to wind up being killed in battle 10, 11 years later, and David suddenly becomes the one who is the heir apparent to the throne, and they coronate David. And in Psalm 145, we read this. David says this. He says, God, your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. Listen closely. And he says, the Lord is faithful in all his words, and he's kind in all his works. Can I give you a couple more? I'm almost done, I promise. Jeremiah 1.12 says, the Lord said to me, you have, you have seen correctly, for I am watching to see that my word is fulfilled. In Lamentations 2.17, it says, the Lord has done what he planned. He has fulfilled his word, which he decreed long ago. In Ezekiel 12.28, it says, therefore say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. None of my words will be delayed any longer. Whatever I say will be fulfilled, declares the sovereign Lord. Don't you dare think that Jesus did not have 
scripture on his lips to remind him that when his father spoke something over him, nothing that man could do to him could ever attack the identity, purpose, or calling of his life. And I'm just here to remind you that it can't for you either. Give him a hand clap of praise for what he's done. If we don't slow down to pay attention, we're going to miss something important. Because in your life and in my life, we're going to go through seasons when the perception of our reality will not align with the truth of our calling or the word of our anointing. And God says, don't you dare give up on what I called you to be. Somebody needs to hear this. I'm going to say that again. God says, don't you dare give up on what I called you to be or what I told you you were just because your reality does not seem to be aligning with my anointing. It will. It's coming. Donna, would you please come play? And would you stand with me? So I'll, I created a sentence that's basically an amalgam of those three points that I've just told you. And I'll ask you this question. Are you willing to open up your house to the king that you might not have chosen so he can speak an identity and a grace into your life that's more true than the circumstances and voices that surround you? Are you willing to open your house to him? Are you willing to let him rearrange some things? Are you willing to let him turn over some tables? So just to finish, Pulitzer Prize winning author named Herman Wouk was a Jew who was living in America. After Israel's independence, I believe Israel's first true president was a man named David Ben-Gurion. And Ben-Gurion was trying to bring some of the native people back who had gone to other places in the world. He wanted to bring back the best and the brightest because he wanted Israel to succeed and to thrive. And he knew that the talent and the blessing of God over those people could create a nation of innovation and prosperity. And so one of those people was Herman Wouk. And he brought Wouk to the country. Herman Wouk and his wife flew in, and they spent two or three days with Ben-Gurion. And there's a whole story to that that I'm not going to tell you. But at the end of those two days, Ben-Gurion laid his cards on the table. And this is the way that Wouk said it. He said, when we were leaving, President Ben-Gurion came out with his straight Zionist line, said no more hints. He said, you must return here to live. He said, this is the only place for you. Here, you will be free. And Wook looked at me and said, free? Free? With enemy armies ringing you? with their leaders publicly threatening to wipe out the Zionist entity, with your roads impassable after sundown, with guns everywhere ready to blaze, you're telling me I'm going to be free here? This, this was Ben-Gurion's line, I love this. He said, I didn't say you'd be safe, I said you'd be free. <laughs> if there's anything that the Christian life is, it is the most unsafe environment for who you are, but it is the only place where you'll find freedom. <laughs> you have to be willing to let him flip tables and rearrange your life, your morals, your finances, your family, but if you're willing to let him come in and create an unsafe environment for who you used to be, then he can set you free forever in a way that you never had access to before. And I'm just here to tell you, Palm Sunday reminds us that this king, the one who actually came riding into Jerusalem, might not have been the one they wanted, but he's the one that the world needed. He's the one that I needed. He's the one that you needed. And this morning, I believe he's still the one that we need. Would you bow your head? Close your eyes, please. These are the things that make for peace. And this is the time of your visitation. Jesus is visiting us right now. And so many weeks over the last 
couple of months, and God has done some powerful and amazing things. God has healed some people. God has saved some people. God has filled some people with the Holy Spirit. Like, I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm amazed. And it's not because of me. It's because of the Spirit of God. It's because as we've gone to him in prayer and we've created an atmosphere where he can move and work freely, we have seen the fruit of that labor. And I'm so thankful for it. But I'm just here to tell you that he's still moving and this is still the time of his visitation. And so I'm just going to, I know it's, it's, almost time, and I, but I just want to give you the opportunity maybe to acknowledge, and I'm going to pray over you. Some of you have been living a life where safety has been your primary goal, to keep things like they are, to make sure that things stay manageable, to not be pressed into a situation where you have to change. I'm just here to tell you that that's not freedom. It's something else. Some of you don't know Jesus right now. Some of you have known him before and you've walked away from him. And you don't think you have. Can I just push you a little bit? You don't think you have. You think because you still attend church every now and then everything's okay. Because you still don't hate God or you still know the Christian lingo that everything's all right. Can I just tell you, if you're not walking in a vibrant relationship with him, then you're not in the place where you need to be. And this morning, I believe he can rescue you from the pathway that you're on. For others, you know him, you walk with him to a point. But as soon as the king becomes the king that you don't want, you pull back. And I just wonder if there's some of us in this room that would have been in that same crowd that declared, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. But then a couple days later would have said, crucify him for we have no king but Caesar. I just wonder if some of us like Jesus as long as he's like us. But when he asks us to be like him, it's a different story. Hmm. So this morning, this morning I just want to ask you, no high pressure situation, I just want to ask you, even if you don't know exactly what it's going to lead to. If you want to open the gates and let that king, the king that knows what things make for peace, the king who is visiting right now, if you want to welcome that king into your heart, I'm not talking about just being saved. I'm talking about if you just need to let him in again, to speak identity over you that runs deeper than circumstance to know that he can come into a sinful and rebellious house and bring salvation, or to know that he can flip some tables in a place that's stagnated by religion. If you just know that you need that king, there's something in your heart that's tugging at you, would you just slip your hand up? You can put it back down if you want to. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. So many. I just want you to know, those of you who lifted your hands, you're not alone in this room. This is the time of our visitation. I'm going to pray over you. Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name right now, for those that lifted their hands and those that knew they should have, God, I just speak this prayer. I would ask humbly that that they would have the courage to tell you in their own voice, with their own, in their own mind, in their own heart, you can come in. The king that you are is the king that I need and you can come in. I give you access to the places in my life that I need identity spoken, that I need sin defeated, that I need religion dissipated, that I need the king who has actually come in the name of the Lord because I've made a terrible king of my own life. If that's you, it's, this is the moment. You pray. Pray that quietly. Pray it out loud. It's all right either way. I'm going to give you just a moment. Because I believe that things can be set free, even this morning. I believe that peace can be had this morning. Because this king knows the things that make for peace. Hmm. One more thing I'm going to ask, and then I promise I'm done. 
I'd just like to see, just honestly to create some accountability. In this room, if you'll tell me that you're going to do something this week to slow down a little bit. Maybe that's you're gonna open the Bible, maybe you've got an audio Bible that you listen to, but you're just gonna pull back. Pull away from some of the busyness and commit your life to, to marinating in the reality of what Jesus has accomplished this week. I wonder if you would tell me you'd do that if you just lift your hand. Thank you, Mine, mine's up too, mine's up too. And thank you for those of you who are honest, thank you for that. I'm gonna pray over you as well because I want you to walk away from next Sunday a different human being, not because the music was great or the preacher was dead on, but because the Spirit of God has had space to saturate your life to the center of who you are. Jesus, right now, simple prayer. Father, for every moment that we pull back, adjust our schedule, slow down, and let you saturate us. Father, I pray and I plead and I speak an exponential blessing of identity and gospel fruit in the lives of every person who's listening to my voice. Father, I pray that you would return into those fields 30, 60, and 100 fold what they invest this week as they draw back from the regular pace of life and allow you to begin to saturate their mind and their heart and their soul. I pray that we would walk in this coming Friday, this coming Sunday, not as people who are wondering what's gonna happen, but as people who have been so marinated in the beauty of the grace of God that we are different even before we start to celebrate, that we walk indifferent and that the stamp of God upon us is not that something happened, but that the continuation of something took place because we've already begun to let you in deeply. Father, I pray that over this house. I pray that over those online watching. I pray that over everyone who will ever hear the sound of my voice in this moment, Father, whenever they listen or watch. I plead with you, Jesus, that you would grow us exponentially because of our obedience to slow down and behold the King who is coming. It's in Jesus' name I pray these things. Amen. Amen. Hey, shake hands with some people. I love you. Prayer tonight, 5 o'clock, Wednesday at 6, Friday at 6, Sunday at 8, Sunday at 10. Get ready. Pray for your pastor. I don't know that I have that many words in my vocabulary, so pray God's grace over me. I love you all. Bless you.